If you want to spend less time going to the grocery store, then you need to check out ButcherBox. It's a super convenient way to find high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust. ButcherBox only sells 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. And you know what all that means. No antibiotics or added hormones, so you get peace of mind that you're eating healthy food. On top of all that, ButcherBox makes shopping simpler because it gets delivered right to your doorstep. Shipping is always free, and you can customize your meal plan so you're only getting exactly what you want. We've tried everything from pork chops to tenderloins at our house, and they're always a huge hit. ButcherBox prices are as good or better than what you can find at the store, plus they have exclusive member deals, as well as a ton of recipes, cooking tips, and other kitchen hacks to choose from. So sign up at ButcherBox.com LISC and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. So sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash LISK, L-I-S-K, and use code LISK to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus $20 off your first order. Mopac Audio. Thanks for joining us on the LISK Podcast. With law enforcement, prosecutors, as well as Rex Hewerman's defense attorney preparing for the upcoming trial, I thought it would be good to take a moment to revisit who the missing women were that began this whole entire investigation. And there's pretty much no better person to do that with than the author of Lost Girls, Robert Kulker. His book does a fantastic job of describing the lives of the women who would ultimately be known as the Go-Go Four, along with their families and the life of Shannon Gilbert, whose disappearance resulted in Suffolk County police finding the bodies. Robert, thank you for joining us. Hi, Chris. Great to talk to you. Give us a little bit about your, you know, your background, how you got started, and then how you kind of found this this list case, and and why did you want to write about it? So I just turned about forty and was working at New York Magazine, uh, writing feature stories and cover stories that a lot of them were true crime stories, and a lot of them were out on Long Island. Back then, I might have been one of the first staff members to live out in Brooklyn, which put me closer to Long Island, and it meant that I had a car, so that uh, when things would happen on Long Island, they often turned to me to go out there. I was not a Long Island expert. I didn't have any police sources. Uh, it was just me with a notebook. New York Magazine sounds kind of fancy, but you know it doesn't hold a candle to big news organizations like 60 Minutes or Dateline or the New York Times. And so when the Gilgo Four were discovered at the end of 2010, I was a little intimidated. I wasn't sure what I would find out if I went out there. And I resisted going out there at first for a couple of reasons, both of which turned out to be colossally wrong. I thought first that they would find the killer in like a day because you may recall that about a year, year and a half before the Gilgo Four were found, there was a Craigslist killer case in New England where a guy hired someone on Craigslist and killed her and the police followed the digital trail and caught him within a day or two. So I thought, Four victims, the police say they think they're escorts, four digital trails, they're going to find this guy in an hour. And uh, that didn't happen. And then the other thing I thought was I bought into the true crime stereotype of the situation. I assumed that the four women were living off the grid, that no one really knew that they were missing, that no one would have been looking for them, and that we might not even learn who they are. I was informed by, you know, an entire culture's worth of, of true crime stereotypes from Jack the Ripper onward. No one really remembers the names of the victims. Mm-hmm. And then you watch show, even reputable, excellent shows like The Wire. There's a season that begins with a shipping container filled with dead women, and we never learn more about them after that. Uh, they are plot devices in a true crime narrative. 
And um, sure enough, I was proven wrong there. Not only were they identified a month later, but their families surfaced. And it turned out they had been looking for them, that they had been desperate for the police to take the disappearances seriously. And these women were you know, in a vulnerable situation before they died, and nobody seemed to care then either. And, and so it had me asking lots of questions. And then when they started finding more sets of human remains up and down Ocean Parkway, the story became impossible to ignore. So I met with the families and got them together, some of them meeting for the first time after being on Facebook, chatting with each other. And I was amazed. It was, it was a breathtaking experience watching them all talk with one another about their lost daughters and sisters. And it really was kind of a life-changing moment for me. And I saw that no matter what happened with the case, and we all wanted an arrest in the case, that there was another story here about how these women got lost to begin with, a story that kind of interrogated some of the assumptions we all make about this population. And I think the most important thing to keep in mind, given this most recent arrest, is there's a reason the killer targeted these women, and that's because he thought that no one would go looking for them. He thought that no one cared about them, and he thought the police wouldn't care if they went missing. And in many cases, he was right. And so Lost Girls from the beginning was an attempt to sort of bump up against those assumptions, help question exactly what social conditions lead to a situation like this. I was inspired by some of the best true crime stories, which aren't just whodunits, but talk about the social issues bubbling under the surface. And it felt like a big gamble at the time because there wasn't a lot of prestigious, high-minded true crime at the time. This was years before Serial, years before Making a Murderer, years before The Jinx. The public appetite for crime stories was pretty much, you know, living on basic cable at the time. So I thought it would be a small, potentially special book and that it would come and go. But then I think what happened is, aside from it being a, a well-regarded book, it also coincided with some things happening in society. I think the public began to be a little more skeptical about criminal justice trends in general. There were more reform-minded people on both sides of the political aisle looking at incarceration as an issue and looking at police as an issue. Uh, the whole conversation about sex work and escort work was changing. And then finally, crime dramas were changing. Suddenly, things were more serious. Suddenly, there was space in the in the crime story world to not just be about thrills and, and catching the bad guy or about you know, looking into the heart of a serial killer, but also looking into the social issues that allow predators to exist. So you get all sorts of excellent work happening, including Michelle McNamara and I'll Be Gone in the Dark, all happening that, that sort of lifted Lost Girls up and kept it in print. And eventually, it's the reason, I think, why they ended up making a feature film based on it. And that was all great news as far as I was concerned, because it kept these women's names alive, particularly Shannon Gilbert, who started it all. It allowed the public to see this case not just as a case about a killer, but as a case about women. Women who aren't defined necessarily by sex work, but by their lives and by what made them vulnerable to a predator. You are so well-spoken, and I am so grateful that you've been able to cover this story, you know, because as I've gotten to know the families, it all becomes more real. And uh, just knowing that someone like you is covering this and bringing light to this is, um, I'm grateful for it. I think what you've done is so right as far as like talking about the victims, showing they're more than just sex workers. Could you just run over the, the, the Gilgo four at least, and just tell us a little brief, you know, one minute thing. And I thought it might be nice just to remind people of, Hey, these are who these ladies are. I'm very glad to talk about the Gilgo four and who they are. And then also Shannon Gilbert, the first of the four to, Go missing was Maureen Brainerd Barnes, and I believe she was 24 years old. She was from Groton, Connecticut, and she disappeared in 2007. This meant that there was 
three and a half years when her family wondered where she was and why the police weren't looking for her before her body was identified at Gilgo Beach. Uh, Maureen had two children, both of whom were old enough to know her and miss her when she was gone. Still, the police didn't do anything. Maureen worked part-time as an escort, but she also worked as a car dealer at Mohegan Sun, and she also worked at a you know fast food place in Groton, and she also worked at a telemarketing agency in Groton, Connecticut. And so she, she was many things. She also was an aspiring songwriter and performer, and she also wanted to be a model. The money she made as an escort allowed her to maintain custody of her kids. It allowed her to live independently and not be under the thumb of uh, a guy she was in a bad relationship with. And so the money from escort work was actually solving a lot of her problems. She took steps to be safe in New York and eventually uh, took some risks in order to make more money and was decided to stay in New York alone for a day or two because she was going about to be evicted. And that was when the killer struck. That's when she disappeared. That was 2007 and Maureen Brainerd Barnes. Then in the summer of 2009, a year and a half before the Gilgo floor was discovered, Melissa Bartholomew disappeared. She was originally from Buffalo. She had a younger sister, Amanda, who was a teenager. She had a mother, and uh, her mother had a boyfriend who was like a father to her. Um, Melissa came to New York. She wanted to run a hair salon and start a business. She was trying to level up in society. She became from a place in Buffalo where the options were drying up, where the factories had closed, the blue-collar jobs had gone away. Her options were to you know work at a convenience store or to make money in the city. She came to New York and eventually got into a relationship with a guy and ended up as an escort. But then she freed herself of him and kind of fired him because he was so invasive and abusive. And she went off on her own and used Craigslist to be her own boss. She wanted to come home to Buffalo. She wanted to make more money before she did. And that didn't happen. Instead, she was targeted by this killer. Again, a year and a half before her body was found and the police did nothing except they tried to trace some mysterious harassing phone calls that are most likely from the killer. Calls that they were able to trace to Midtown Manhattan, not far from where Rex Sherman worked. These are the now famous calls to Amanda where he taunted her and harassed her and said racist comments to her and called her sister a whore and said that he was watching her body rot. These are calls that got the police's attention for a little while, but then they went away again for another year and a half. Again, I just have to reinforce this with listeners. If these women had been, you know, corporate workers or college students or had had more conventional jobs, this would have been a very different story. The police would have been way more active. And I think we need to think about that because the killer certainly was. The third person to go missing was Shannon Gilbert. She's not one of the Gilgo Four, but this was early in the morning on May 1st, 2010 seven months before the Gilgo Four were found. She disappeared about three miles away from where the Gilgo Four were found. She disappeared in Oak Beach. She was with a driver going to pay an escort call to a guy who lived in Oak Beach, and the circumstances of her disappearance remain very mysterious. There's a 22-minute 911 tape where she says that someone's trying to kill her. There are two different neighbors who called 911 because she was running and screaming through the neighborhood. And then finally, there's her disappearance, which the police today insists all was happenstance, had nothing to do with homicide. They eventually found her body uh, a year after the Gogo Four were found, and they insist that her death was an accident. 
But if it weren't for her, they wouldn't have found the Gilgo Four. It was the Suffolk County Police Department's cadaver-sniffing dog that was out on maneuvers in the area where she disappeared that a just by happenstance, again, happened to turn up uh, the Gilgo Four. The third member of the Gilgo Four to disappear was just a little more than a month after Shannon Gilbert. This was Megan Waterman. She was from Scarborough, Maine, but she again, again, she came to Long Island to make money. She was in a hotel just a short drive away from where the Gilgo Four were eventually found. She was doing escort calls. She had a boyfriend who was supposedly going to be protecting her and supervising and making sure that nothing bad happened to her. Turns out he was nowhere near her when she disappeared. She was picked up at the hotel. There's video at the hotel of her leaving, but there's no video of who picks her up. And that's the last anyone hears from her. She um, was in love with her boyfriend. They were in business together to help raise her daughter. She wanted a more conventional life someday, and they were they thought they were working to get there. It turns out the, the boyfriend was a criminal, but not connected to her murder. It was a devastating loss for her entire family, especially her young daughter, who was actually there at the press conference when they announced Rex Herman's arrest. She was standing there uh, right behind the the district attorney. The fourth person to disappear was Amber Costello, and that was in September of 2010, just a few months before the Gilgo Four were found. No one in Amber's life went to the police when she disappeared because they all were concerned that the police wouldn't take it seriously. And they also were worried about being open to prosecution themselves. Amber had started out in Wilmington, North Carolina. Her parents had addiction issues. And by the time they died, Amber was off on her own, sort of partnering with her sister, Kim. And in Lost Girls, their relationship is explored in depth. They loved each other, they couldn't live without each other, and they both were escorts. And by the time they came to Long Island, they were sort of at the end of their rope in terms of addictions, and they were working very hard to make as much money as possible. Amber was running a scam with her roommates where instead of actually performing the calls, the Johns would be um, surprised by Amber's roommates who would come out and threaten them, and they would try to rip off the John and get money that way. And a day after trying that, at some point that she disappeared for good and no one knew what happened to her until the go-go four were discovered. Thank you for that. <laughs> and if I could ask just one favor here, would you give me just like um, 30 seconds or a minute on just Shannon's background a little bit? Shannon in many ways fit the profile of the other four. She was in her twenties. She worked as an escort. She was from out of town. She was from a part of America that the media tends to overlook, a sort of struggling part of America where the options are narrowing. In her case, it was Ellenville, New York. Uh, she came from a family where uh, her mother was single and some of her boyfriends were abusive. She escaped the worst of that abuse, but it was sort of a bad deal for her in a way because she was living in foster care. Very strange childhood Shannon had where she was smart and well-liked and talented and had an amazing singing voice and performed in shows. But she went to the same schools as her sisters, but more often than not, she would go home to a foster family and her sisters would go home to their mother. She felt like an outsider in her own family. She was determined to make a success of herself to sort of win her place back into her family. And this was sort of the, the arc of her life. She, after high school, 
took some classes and then she started working and then she decided she would go to New York again to be a performer, to be an actress, to be a singer. She moved to Jersey City and in order to make money, she worked for an escort service. That's where she met her boyfriend, Alex Diaz. When the escort business went under, they went into business together and he became her driver and she would perform calls. When Alex didn't want to work, she used a different driver, a guy named Michael Pack. And it was Michael Pack and Shannon Gilbert who drove out to Long Island late at night on April 30th, 2010, and where Shannon disappeared. Thank you for that. You know, that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is your POS command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that unites your in-person and online sales into one seamless process. Easily track every sale across your business and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. You can take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify POS Go mobile device. Easy peasy. And if there's ever a question, Shopify's award-winning support is there to answer your questions. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lisk, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Lisk to take your retail business to the next level today. One last time, go to shopify.com slash L-I-S-K. I want to get first just your thoughts on once you heard about them arresting Rex. You know, like, it's kind of that, where were you? But can you talk about what, you know, how that happened and what your initial thoughts were when, when this news came in? I was stunned. It was early in the morning. I was walking my dog and I got an email from my wife who noticed it on the news that there was an arrest. And my first reaction, aside from gasping for air, was it's not that someone was brought in for questioning. It's not that someone was named as a person of interest. It's not that they decided that someone was at large and they were pursuing him. It was an actual arrest in custody about to be charged. And I thought, wow, they must really have something amazing. And I was not expecting it at all. No one had tipped me off. And I was simply amazed because this was a case with so few revelations, so little movement over such a long period of time. It had been 10 years to the week since Lost Girls was published. And it had been 12 years, of course, since the disappearances and the, and the Gilgo Four. And in those 12 years, you could count on one hand the number of interesting press conferences the police had. And you could count on zero fingers the number of declared suspects, the number of declared persons of interest. It was amazing how little was happening with this case. And now to have something big like this, it was stunning. I'd always hoped, and I'd seen with other cases, how sometimes something shakes loose 10 years later, maybe 15 years later, and then the case is cracked. And of course, there's the inspiring example of the Golden State Killer, where it took more than that, but but eventually they found someone. So I always hoped that would happen here but to watch it all unfold quite by surprise it, i was blown away and i'm still blown away yeah i remember i started getting texts and i'm like i don't want to believe it until i get more info like this <laughs> this doesn't sound right 
because I just thought we would spend our whole lives wondering who this was. And once you found out that it was Rex, you know, because I'm sure like me, you, you start thinking about like, who could this be among all the different people that we, you know, that have been thrown out there. Once you heard about Rex, what struck you about him? What surprised you? What didn't surprise you? I was surprised that he had such a public facing job. I assumed that it would be a loner like Joel Rifkin, someone who kept to himself and drove around in a truck and you know was able to do his thing unnoticed. But here's a guy who had an office in Manhattan who had clients who were relatively high profile, who was not shy, and um, you know it was a different model, sort of a um, BTK model, like the family man who, who everyone trusts, or maybe Ted Bundy was. Ted Bundy's more charismatic, but still, I wasn't ready for that. But of course, in many other ways, he really fit. I mean, he's centrally located in Massapequa Park, which is a 20-minute drive from where the Gilgo Four were found uh, along Ocean Parkway. And he's a native to Long Island, which everybody seemed to think was a, a prerequisite for this killer because he would know the places to go to not be noticed, the places to dispose of bodies. It wouldn't be someone who just sort of is wandering or traveling up and down in, around the country. And of course, the cell phone things that we know exist of those harassing phone calls, they were just a block away from where he worked. And Maureen Brainerd Barnes's final phone call to her sister was said to be from Penn Station. That's just a block away from Rex Sherman's office. And and you start to see, you know, the dots connecting in your head. I mean, I guess we have to talk about kind of the elephant in the room. And, and when you start hearing about the tips of the avalanche you know, the the vehicle that he had, you know, just days after they find the bodies when they start talking to Dave and, you know, Amber's roommates, Dave and Bear. But then you also have in 2012, the FBI finishes up this work and they have all this cell data that, you know, gives them a box of where this stuff is happening. We've talked about the corruption, but what what surprises you and what has shocked you as you hear more about the investigation? From the beginning, it was kind of an open question why this case wasn't moving. Was it was it apathy? Was it incompetence? Or was it corruption? Or was it a little bit of all of it? And then over time, you start to see, you know, different lights flare up, like the, the Burke situation happens, and, the, and then suddenly that, that's the corruption light that's flaring up, saying, oh, well, that explains why the case was paralyzed for so long. Why would he want to have the FBI hanging out at his department if he was up to no good? And then there's the apathy one where you see, you know, many instances of the police holding the families at arm's length, blaming the victims passively for what happened, telling the public they didn't have to worry about a serial killer, dehumanizing the victims. And then there was a questions of incompetence. You saw one of the commissioners, Dormer, was at war with, with Tom Spoda, the, the DA at the time, about whether there was one killer or more than one killer. This was all happening in public in front of everybody. So the killer was getting a message there that, you know, basically that he was going to get a free pass, that he was, it didn't matter how talented a serial killer he was, he, he had a police force that was at war with the DA's office. So, you know, he was good. He was going to be okay. And and so it was really, it was, you know, dispiriting to watch all of these reasons all be right. Apathy, incompetence, corruption. But then things start to change. You see, you know, some new commissioners come in who have, you know, nothing to do with the old guard particularly Geraldine Hart, who spent her whole career at the FBI. She brings in uh, genetic you know, DNA analysis and FBI, FBI cooperation at a better level. And then after her, Rodney Harrison brings in 
this task force and interagency cooperation. And as you mentioned, the the cell phone data, the, the, the geographic location, and they're able to see that there was this tip, this tip that had been overlooked for years about a Chevy Avalanche. And it's um, it's a gut punch to see that there was information like this back then, to see that there was a guy living in Massapequa Park who had 92 gun permits and that nobody was interested in, at the time, in sort of pursuing whether a Chevy Avalanche belonged to anybody in central Long Island. But it took this long, it's just stunning stunning. And yet you can't help but be impressed that they did it at this stage, that they were able to put it together now. And so you, it's weird to hold these two emotions at once, but to be impressed with the police work involved and to have just discussed for how long it took, uh, that that's the, that's what I'm feeling right now. That is a great point because I, I want to give full credit for what my credit's worth to the task force and to you know people working together and doing their jobs and doing them well. We've talked to some some detectives and, and, you know, people who know this world and you know it well enough too. they're like, it should have been solved in 2012, like with what they had, even if DNA wasn't quite there, because that's just more, you know, sealing the deal. And, you know, you're you're like, well, maybe he didn't keep killing. But one, you just have these family members that are waiting for answers and being pushed away. And as you talked about, just shut down. But then if he did keep killing, I mean, that is blood on their hands as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a serial killer profile and I'm not a criminologist and I'm not a cop, but it's hard for me to imagine that he would stop at four. Not, not if he's this particular and this deliberate and this organized and, and is doing such an effective job of, of leading a double life. There is a temptation here though, just to your point about being critical of the police, there's a temptation here to say that he was some sort of mastermind, that he was some killer. And there's going to be a lot of coverage out there. I know it because I'm getting phone calls about it that try to look into the, the heart of a monster or into the mind of a killer, you know, to, to treat him like he's Hannibal Lecter or something like that. The, the fact of the matter is what, what we're learning about him is that he did a lot of things right and he did a lot of stupid things too. Like he mm-hmm. used... He apparently used a roll of tape that had been lying around the house, so that had hair on it that could be traced. He yeah. apparently, it seemed, if we're to believe that the initials on the belt correspond to his father's initials. He actually used that belt and left it at the scene. How uh, that's not the work of a criminal mastermind. And no. and you know to um, kill uh, someone after being identified by her friends the night before. Uh, at the house, that's pretty sloppy too. So I think yeah. he, he benefited from a lot of police screw-ups. He was not some you know super criminal. And I think we romanticize serial killers too much. I mean, this shouldn't come as any surprise to to your listeners that the guy who wrote a true crime book that didn't have a killer in it isn't terribly interested in the personality and psychology of killers. But I'm not. I'm just not. I think that they are awful, disturbed people who deserve to be caught. And that's about where I stop thinking about them. Well, I, yeah, I appreciate you pointing that stuff out because, you know, I mean, he's there the night before. Yeah, the whole Amber thing just still blows my mind. I imagine he's losing control, right? Like he gets, he gets attacked or almost attacked or threatened and humiliated by Dave Schaller and by, you know, by Amber. And I don't know if Bear's there or not that night, but, but at any rate, he's humiliated. And then he, he decides, well, the next night I'm going to go get her. I'm going to kill her. Like, that's not the work of a cautious person. And I don't think no. that those harassing phone calls to, 
to Amanda, to Melissa Bartholomew's sister, I don't think that's the work of a cautious person either. I don't think it's him saying, I hold all the cards and I'm in charge. I think that's him saying, I can't stop myself. Yeah. Well, and he carried the cell phones with his phone, you know, like their phones. So it's like they have those things together. I am not a detective or a cell phone expert, but I know enough to like, they can track that stuff. Even, you know, back then there, you know, it was kind of known. So uh, to your point, it's shocking how bad he was. Yep. And, you know, what I think what they should have done by 2012. How can we um, all be better at covering these stories? I see a tremendous amount of improvement. Uh, you don't see headlines like, you know, five prostitutes killed. You know, you see like, you know, killer targets five women and then you learn more about them as it goes on. I, I think that um, sending... Uh, people who are in, vulnerable and, and, and marginalized in society, sending them into the shadows is a surefire way, way of, of asking predators to target them. So if we pull people out of the shadows and we destigmatize, I, I, I've stayed out of the decriminalization argument because I think that there are you know, pros and cons on both sides, but, but there's absolutely no good that can happen from just deciding these people don't exist or pretending that they aren't out there because they, they are out there and they're vulnerable and people target them. And uh, I think a lot of people get that now. I think the media is getting it more. And I think certainly Rodney Harrison gets it. He's there hugging the family members and treating them with dignity, just as if the people who disappeared were, you know, not marginalized figures in society. So I see progress. I definitely see progress. Uh, well said. Anything I missed? No, no, I'm, I'm thrilled to talk to you. I'm a fan and uh, and very glad that, you know, that you're a podcast like yours that has, you know, that treats people with dignity is, is so popular. Well, thank you. And uh, we learned it from watching you, Dad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I have my book sitting there that is signed from you that I reference all the time. So I'm grateful for you and I'm grateful for the time. I know you've been doing a lot of these and you are busy, but um it is it is fun to fun is not the right word. It is exciting to see justice happening moving forward. We you know, he's alleged. But um it's just nice to have that and it's good to celebrate it. Um, even though it's weird to celebrate. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it's definitely it's heartening to to see progress like this and to see this arrest. It's um it's something that might never have happened. And uh, and hopefully, you know, police departments, especially SCPD, can learn something from this of like, maybe we don't, uh, you know, shit the bed next time and we just show up. That's that's something we can hope for. But hey, thank you for talking. I'm excited to read your new stuff and um, I'll be in touch. Thank you, Chris. Great talking to you. Oh, great talking to you. Thanks, Bob. Thanks. Bye-bye. We appreciate you listening to the Always Thoughtful Robert Kolker and encourage you to read his book, Lost Girls, and also watch the Netflix movie of the same name. Just a heads up that we'll be releasing two more episodes this week with Josh Zeman and Rachel Mills, who were the filmmakers behind the A&E series, The Killing Season. Their work has been extremely important in keeping light shine on the Long Island serial killer case. They'll be sharing their thoughts on how the investigation finally led to an arrest, how some of their views have shifted, and other super interesting stuff. For more info, go to Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is Atlas Podcast. And you can also check out our website, listpodcast.com. And thank you. This has been a Mopac Audio production. I am your host, Chris Moss. Our senior producer is Shannon McGarvey. Our executive producers are Jonathan Beal and Jonathan Nowazarden. And music by Blake Maples.
The views, speculation, conjecture, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, and the hosts. They do not reflect or represent the policy or views held by Mopac Audio LLC or any broadcaster of this podcast. Any and all suspects discussed on this podcast are considered innocent until guilt is established in a court of law and any allegations, speculation, opinion, or conjecture about any suspect is subject to such presumption of innocence.